Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Certified Forgotten. I am 50% of the mats on this show, Matt Monagle, and I'm joined by 50% of the mats on the show, Matt Donato. How you doing, Matt? Doing okay. Representing the other 50. I like it. Um, so this is this is a show where we kind of, and I don't want to say go through the dredges of Rotten Tomatoes, but we go through the the films on Rotten Tomatoes that just never quite got enough love, or you know, we hope didn't get enough love. In this case, we're looking at movies that are five reviews or less on Rotten Tomatoes, four reviews or less if you consider that Donato always has one of them. Um, and you know, for this episode, I, I just feel like this is going to be a dunkathon on Matt Donato. So um, I, I mean, I, clearly I'm here for that, um, and I think it's going to be a good time. But apologies in advance; it's going to get shitty. Matt, will you please introduce today's guest? Sure thing. I don't know why I brought on today's guest. It allowed him into my home to podcast with us because, yes, it's going to be a dunkathon. Uh, with us this week, we have Mr. Rob Hunter from Film School Rejects, who you probably know from slam dunking on me on Twitter basically every each and every day, uh, or his writing. But Mr. Hunter, do you have any words for our listeners? Uh, just for the record, that's fake Rob Hunter on Twitter. I myself consider us to be very good friends, Matt. So now you're gaslighting me too. So now we've gone from dunking into gaslighting. This so the great. Twitter handle is fake, but the love is real. Exactly. And also, I think it's worth mentioning that I am currently 100% of the Robs on this show. So this is true. true. There, we have no other Robs. Worth pointing out. The math holds up. Uh, if you've listened to other podcasts, you know that Rob and I have done a, a lot of stuff over at Film School Rejects. We've done some of the review podcast episodes. If you follow him on Twitter, you know that he is a big fan of um, going after people like Tommy Laren, and we thank him for his service. But we do <laughs> have, we, we do want to go through some of the questions before we talk about today's movie and why the pick was sort of inspired by you to begin with. Um, we want to ask you a little bit about kind of your relationship to horror, which is exciting for me because for as long as I've known you, I've never actually heard you answer any of these questions. So this is going to be informational for Matt Monagle. Uh, Rob, you are a, in, in my book, you're one of the people, and, and you know this because I've done this before. If I need a horror recommendation, I will tag you on Twitter. I will basically like ask you what I should see, especially if I'm looking at foreign films and Asian cinema in particular. Where did your love of the genre start? Like, what is the origin story of Rob Hunter, horror cinephile? Um, I mean, I don't have any kind of great story here, and I don't, unlike a lot of people, I don't also have a, like, a great relative or, or dad or something <laughs> that introduced me to it or brought me to it early. Um, it was one of those things where uh, I'm, I'm, I used to be a pretty voracious reader, and the, my, my genre of choice for reading was always horror novels. And so I'd go to the library, I'd pick out, like, you know, like, I, my, I remember being, the, the first Coons book I saw was Phantoms with this pitch black cover in the back of the book, it just talks about heads in ovens. And I was like, well, yes, I'm going to read this book. Um, Phantom's so like a motherfucker. <laughs> from there, I went, got into the movies. Uh, from there, I was kind of, you know, coming into the horror genre at the time when it was, I, I'm a little older than you guys. So, so <laughs> this is pre-internet, pre-streaming, pre-torrents uh, and all that jazz. So they were like, you know, mail order companies, like in the back of Fangoria magazine or Gorazon magazine, where you could like you know request a catalog, and they they offer these essentially their bootlegs, and these are being advertised in the back of the magazine. Um, and then the internet did come along, and so there were very basic sites where you can go and you can order like a VHS bootleg of particular movies, and it would always be you know the like the true uncut version, or the you know the European version or whatever. And so I kind of just started getting deeper and deeper into the kind of stuff that was available, finding foreign films, and that's kind of what got me into the foreign horror in general. Um, because I started finding access that was not at Blockbuster, not at Hollywood Video. And again, this is before streaming services online. So, And it was always stuff that kind of piqued my interest. And so I would get more and more of it. And I just, it just kind of grew. And so I, I, I mean, I love all kinds of horror. Um, but it just started from an initial love of reading fiction, of reading horror fiction. Um, and then from there, I mean, you, 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 know, you find friends who are also into it. And I was able to get, you know, I got my mom into it, watching a screening of The Fog once. Um, she loved it. My dad started, did start bringing me to like some theaters some, for some movies. Um, so I kind of like forced their hand from my perspective and it seemed to work out. That's so funny that you got your parents into horror from watching it around them. And meanwhile, I started watching horror around my parents and they would walk in the room going, what the fuck is wrong with you? I, <laughs> like I my have, dad walked in on like dead sushi and he's like, what? I, I, what have, is going? I, I still have a, a, a fond memory of watching, um, again, one of those VHSs I, I, I bought, like, you know, from the online 
of Meet the Feebles before it was available. Again, you know, not that it's even available now. I don't know. I, I don't think it is you in the U.S. But it was a VHS of it. You know, like Peter Jackson, because of course I love you know Bad Taste and Dead Alive stuff like that. And so like, oh, Meet the Feebles, puppets, you know, Spider, blah blah. blah. So I I got it. I was watching it late at night, and my mom, who was used to coming down the stairs and catching me watching me uh, catching me watch like stuff like um like Private School or like you know naughty Phoebe Cates things. She came down to me watching this thing with puppets and like, you know, the fly on shit and the little guy and the, the love story and the machine guns blowing puppets apart. And she sat down and watched it with me. And I was kind of like, one, nervous because I'm like, okay, well, I don't know where this movie's going to go. So this could get, you know, unfortunate. But two, kind of like, well, this is, this is nice. So she, and she watched it and she laughed along and she enjoyed it. And luckily it was a safe, you know, for, for that term, uh, movie. Nothing was truly over the top there, other than like the, the violence and the puppet puppet gore and a little bit of semen, if I remember, remember correctly. Yeah, so you're probably <laughs> you're the first person in the history of ever to be like, hey, "Meet the Feebles" was a safe movie. It was a good. She was a good mom approved. Well, pick. as opposed to like it wasn't like Guinea Pig I was watching or something like that, where she came in and there was like you know horrible things happening to live women. It, it was just you know fun with puppets, and so uh, so those kind of experiences are, are kind of the ones that kind of like stick in my memory. But for the most part, like I said, just for me and horror, it was. Just finding more of it, you know, going beyond the boundaries, going beyond the studio stuff. Not necessarily looking for extreme stuff. That was never really in my bag. But um, different things. Different kind of things that not, that never showing in, in the local theater, I guess. And I mean, definitely, I looked, I, you know, not that I like to admit that I look to you for anything, but I do look to you <laughs> for foreign horror movies. And I'd look to you for, especially like Korean cinema and mm-hmm. Korean horror films. Typically, if Rob Hunter is talking about it, and it's usually worth your time. Yeah, this is the Agreed. this is an awkward part of the show where we're probably going to compliment Rob for a little bit. So, yeah, like, no, I fucking hate it. I, yeah, it's not great, but we got to do it. So, I expect yeah. it'll all be deleted by the time this airs. I, I can cut it out <laughs> later. Yeah, because like that's the thing, right? Is like I'd go to Vulcan Video here in Austin, and I would just be going up and down the Asian aisle, and and I would be like, "Can you can you give me some recommendations?" And you throw out like ten titles, six of which invariably haven't even hit the home video market here in the United States. So like, how did that talking about Asian cinema in particular, like, how did that become something that I, I do? This is the compliment. I do consider you an expert. Like, I do think that you're one of the premier people in my network of folks that understands, you know, action and horror and, you know, sci-fi, like any of that that comes from the Asian market, you know that really well. So how did that become like one of the things that you were like, I'm watching so much of this shit? Um, I don't know because there wasn't really there wasn't really like an intentional effort at least early on. Like, like I said, originally I tried to, I would expand and so I'd go to just again European cinema, Asian cinema, um, movies that again weren't getting proper releases here or any releases here. But I'd hear about them like again the pages of like magazines. I see the imagery stuff like that. And so I started getting into it that way. But then obviously as you know, once the internet was like up and fully functioning with full on streaming services, um, and I'd start hearing about more type of movies, again, whether it be in articles, online articles, people attending films in other lands that I could never get to, but they would inform me about the movie, and then from there I'd been, you know, then be able to keep an eye out for it. Specifically to Asian cinema, and my, my kind of thing is, I mean, if I had to pick, narrow it even, even tighter, it would go to Korea, mm. um, as you guys already mentioned. I mean, for, for me, the Korean cinema and Korean filmmakers, um, just they, they handle so much of it so well. I mean, whatever the genre is, um, I think that better than any other, if you're looking at it as far as like a, like a nation, you know, of filmmakers, they do such a good job of balance, you know, tonal balance, moving between genres, even within the same movie, um, going from like, you know, laugh out loud to something horrendous or violent or just traumatic. And then two minutes later, you're laughing again. They just handle it really well. And the performance story is great. It's the best country for child actors. No country, you know, creates better child actors than Korea does. That's a flat-out fact. <laughs> um, um, and so I kind of got into it that way. And again, I think that because they have so many good ones, the percentage of great movies coming out of Korea um, for the past, you know, for a while now, for the past few decades at least, um, is so high compared to at least what I see from other countries, including the U.S., that it just became an area where I, I would, you know, focus more and more. And I make a point of seeing more and more of the movies. If I hear about something and but I didn't know anything about the talent involved, I'd still seek it out. Um, and again, in today's day and age, it's just so much easier. And then also in the past decade or so, I've been attending film festivals. And so you have festivals like Fantasia up in Montreal or Fantastic Fest in Austin. And even beyond the general joy of film festivals, that you're seeing movies that you know, you're not spoiled by any kind of marketing yet, you don't know anything about, these festivals in particular bring in and are playing movies from other countries, including Korea, but elsewhere as well, that are definitely not going to get 
a theatrical release in the U.S. and odds are aren't even going to get like an actual you know regular release like the video or any of that here either. And so I've been exposed to a lot more in that way as well. And then again, it just becomes a contact game. I, mean, I, I learn about a talent. Even if the movie doesn't come available here, I'm able to seek it out via streaming. Um, if I, I recognize a name or recognize, okay, this is a follow-up to something else. And so it just kind of grows from there. Um, so it really just was a matter of, like, man, again, my, expo- my interest in general in international cinema, and then it just fine-tuned because the Korea is, is quality. I mean, at the end of every year, I feel like when I do my horror roundup list, there's at least one or two Korean films every time, whether it be The Wailing, Train to Busan. Absolutely. I, and I mean, like, those are just the obvious ones. But the last few years, it's just been consistent where there's at least one or two Korean horror films that are ending up in my top ten. Yep. So when did um, you talked about starting festivals about ten years ago? I'm I'm curious because I also don't know your origins as a writer. Like when did you start writing about this, and when did you become a, a film critic as opposed to just somebody that was you know cutting stuff out from the back of Fangorias? I for whatever reasons so I was I was working in IT for Pete's Coffee and Tea Company hmm. up in uh, up in the Bay Area, like you do. And um, wait, computers were invented at that time. They they were they were. This was in your your um, early forties or your late forties. <laughs> <laughs> they they were um so the compliments are done is that we're saying? <laughs> oh yeah 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 no we're getting right to it now. Just wanted to be sure. yep yep but so so i had actually i had come across uh film school rejects online and um i emailed neil miller who's like the publisher and he's been he's obviously the one that created the site emailed him and said hey because this is back in the day where you know they weren't paying anybody they were just like covering stuff and it was it looked like it was fun and i've always i've always written Usually it was like stories, you know, whether it be, you know, fiction or creative nonfiction, whatever it might be. Um, but I hadn't really written about movies much. But I had taken a class once where part of it, one of the assignments was to do a movie review. And so I actually reviewed, um, what was that movie with Jim Caviezel? The one about, he goes back in time to save his... Yeah, yeah. We, we all, the class went to see that movie and we all had to review it. And my review that the teacher starred my review Ooh. he did tell me to cut the entire intro where i referenced the brady bunch episode about the house of cards that is built for the entire episode and then falls apart but <laughs> other than that he, he loved the review and so that to me was an interesting thing and so i emailed anyways i emailed the site and i said hey you know you know would love to be a writer blah blah and uh so he he put me on a list and they sent me a dvd copy of zodiac fincher's movie mm-hmm. and said okay cover this and so that was like my first movie covering, which I mean, obviously starting off on a phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal film. Yeah. Um, but so that was my first taste of it. And so it was one of those things too, where it was like, wait a minute, I get to write about this movie and you sent it to me for free. So it was one of those things. And I mean, it's, it's come a long way since then. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm paid now happily. Um, it had been for a while, but so initially it was just, I was writing again for the access. I was writing to, you know, to reach things, to get things, to, to gain access to movies to see them, to then share my opinions about it. And, uh, I mean, I, I have opinions, and I do love sharing them. So. So, some would say too much. <laughs> yeah. So the fact that somebody was willing to let me put those opinions up on the internet um, and give me free movies, I was totally down for that. that that's actually a, a fun question. Uh, Manuel, do you remember the first film that you reviewed, uh, right. like for a major publication or, you know, for a publication like Film School Rejects? Because obviously, like, I started on a, my own blog, but the first film review that I ever did, I'm pretty sure 100% was uh, Detention, uh, Joseph Kahn's Ugh. movie. No. Is that why you love it? Freaking brilliant. Yeah. I think, I think it's nostalgia. It's not nostalgia. It's, just a, it's a great movie, and I connect with it on levels. I don't know. But um, yeah, so Monaco, do you remember yours? Yeah, I actually, I remember first pieces in a couple of different stages. Um, when I was in middle school, the first review I ever wrote was for the Capital City Weekly, which was our alt weekly in Juno is not really an alt weekly, but a weekly in Juno. Um, I reviewed the Mothman prophecies and then okay. the first, um, <laughs> the first article I got that was published somewhere after college, one of the first like film essays I got, I wrote about the sound design in session nine and that got me published in Paris cinema. It didn't pay, but, um, Paris cinema That's magazine fine. was, was, um, kind of the, the, my in, entrance into the world of genre cinema and film criticism in general, which is why I'm, um, very ride or die for Christine Makepeace and a couple of the other people I knew at that time. But yeah, and then I think the first thing that I ever got paid to write was, uh, might have been a thing for Film School Rejects, actually. I wrote about Leonardo DiCaprio never winning an Oscar, and uh, well, you know, I was right, and he never did at the end. That <laughs> yeah, was like six, six years ago. I don't remember anymore. But yeah, so it was, yeah, I, I, I actually, I, you know, I, I feel like when you're in this industry, you keep 
these weird benchmarks where, and, you know, yeah. it's, it's a hard thing to articulate to somebody who isn't in the industry, but you understand different tiers of publications and you know when you've been able to move into the next tier and you know when you've been able to, you know, write about something or a type of article that you probably couldn't have gotten published before. So I kind of have this this weird litany, and I'm sure we all do, litany of, of um, progressive moments in my professional career that wouldn't mean anything to anybody other than other writers. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know, I, I remember my first interview was uh, Liam Neeson for, I think it was Taken 2. And my first on-camera interview was Insidious 2. And I, I get to interview um, Patrick Wilson and why am I blanking on the female actress? This is Rose terrible. Burn. Yes, Rose Byrne. So, yeah, I remember those things 100%. And even to the fact that the first review I ever wrote for a blog, obviously, like, I don't even, it was the first time I ever even tried my hand at writing and putting it out into the world, was uh, Legion that Paul, Paul, Bettany. Paul Bettany, crappy old uh Paid to see that in the movie theater. Movie. It was a summer yeah, release. Guess what I would have given it probably? Three out of five. Yep. <laughs> a generic summer release from Matt Monagle. Yeah. This is fine, yeah. Matt Monagle. Put it on all your posters. This is fine. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about a movie that is, I think, a little bit better than fine. Um, and one that was inspired, I, I believe this was a recommendation way back when. I'd have to go through Twitter. But uh, this series was a recommendation from Rob Hunter. So um, this is... This specific film is actually a sequel. It's called Cold Prey 2. It's a follow-up, a 2008 follow-up to a 2006 film called, wait for it, Cold Prey. And it follows kind of the events of the first one. In the first one, a group of friends that live in sort of, or that are visiting the Norwegian countryside uh, end up going to um, spend a weekend snowboarding up in the mountains. One of them gets hurt. They find an abandoned ski chalet and take up residence there. And it turns out there is a, monster of a man who's hunting them with a giant pickaxe through the halls. This one, the, the sequel, Cold Prey 2, picks up pretty much right where that left off. It's got that Halloween 2 vibe. Uh, they recover Yannicka, who is one of the, the the final girl from the first film, and bring her to a hospital. They also bring back the, her friends who were murdered by the behemoth, and they bring back the guy himself. Of course, when you bring back a serial killer, uh, invariably they come back to life. And he then begins to stalk the halls of the hospital as a group of poorly prepared and poorly organized police and medical technicians try and stop him. It's kind of the, the general idea here. And I want to open this up because um, I believe Rob and I had seen this before. So I want to open this up to Matt for initial impressions first. So I have a quick question before we even get to that. Is there a reason why we did Cold Prey 2 and not Cold Prey? Because I just checked Cold Prey and that only has two Rotten Tomatoes uh, reviews as well. So I'm, I'm just curious here. What was the thought process before uh, by picking the sequel over the, the original? Well, two things. One, I think it's more interesting um, sometimes when you talk about a sequel as opposed to the original movie. And I think that Cold Prey, um, which Rob and I can talk about a little bit, I think Cold Prey is a good solid slasher. I think the Cold Prey 2 is a really inspired sequel to a good okay. solid slasher. So I think that there is, I think what they do with Cold Prey 2 is more interesting than than the original, which is by every right, like a good slasher film. But there's more to talk about here. That's why I picked it. Well, then I will start by saying I also agree with you. And number one, I'll answer your question. I had not seen either Cold Prey until you suggested it for the podcast. So yes, this episode is my first time actually watching them. And I just got finished with Cold Prey 2 as Rob walked into my apartment. So I'm fresh off the uh, trail of Cold Prey 2. And I, initial impression is exactly what, how you sold it to me. It's a very solid slasher film. It's a very solid international slasher film that has some pretty brutal deaths. I think it takes a little bit too long to get to where it needs to. And it takes a little bit building up. Rob, when, just, when can I start disagreeing? I mean, I, if you don't, I'm going to. So feel free. In any case... This is, this is my opinion, all right? Relax. You guys can talk over me literally a minute, but... Okay, yeah, so I'll just let you guys go at this point, actually. You can do whatever you want. I like the film. I'm not trashing it at all. I think it's very, very chilly, stony. It's got all the right notes for a slasher should have. I just think it takes a minute or two too long to get there, but yes, did go. You, did you watch them back-to-back -to -back today? Uh, not directly back-to-back. -back. I don't What does that mean? There was time in between, like, like an like, hour or two. Okay, so I would, but my immediate response to that is it sounds like you're coming off of the end of a movie okay. that with the back half of the movie of the first film is constant action mm -hmm. and slasher, and then you jump back in again to this world, and because it's a different movie, you've got to wait for the setup, True. but you were still in the mindset of, of okay. you know, the previous movies. It would be something I would, I would suggest. 
um, to define why you're wrong. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, I like the fact that Cold Prey 2 takes its time to get started so much that I wrote down the minute and second of the first kill because I was going to be like, I can't believe that this movie, which is only 128, 26 minutes long, uh, 126 no. minutes, and only an hour and 26 minutes long, 37 minutes and 52 seconds is when the first person gets killed in Cold Prey mm -hmm. 2. And I fucking love that. Like, I think yep. that that is... I think that they not only give you time to get to know the new group of characters who are super important to, you know, establishing stakes for this, but they also give you lots of time to spend with Yannicka, the final girl from the first film, as she's sort of processing her trauma. Like they brought back the entire original cast just to play the dead versions of themselves in the <laughs> morgue for like a scene where she's processing her grief and survivor's guilt. And like the thing that makes this, and I'm going to say it, the thing that makes this one of my favorite horror sequels of all time, if not my favorite horror sequel of all time, is that 37 minutes and 52 seconds where they do a lot of things before they kill a single person. And that's funny because one of my favorite, or I think my favorite horror sequel of all time is uh, REC2, or however you pronounce it, uh, Record 2, because they do exactly the opposite of that. They run directly to the finale of Record 1, and they bring you right back to the scene of the crime, and they just kick right back into action. So I, I think that just explains both our taste in cinema, and or all three of our tastes in cinema, because you know I'm the over-the-top, and I'm the like action-centric horror fan. Uh, so that speaks to me a little more. But I, I agree with what you said, though. I mean, I do think it's important and stuff like that. And I'm not saying it takes way too long. For me, it's just literally a few minutes. That's it. It's just a few minutes. So it's a smaller gap than you're giving me shit for. <laughs> Deservedly. Um, but I think that, like, what, what what the other Matt, the better Matt, is saying... Thank you. Is, Thank you. ...is that... Um, why did I invite you? <laughs> Into your time, home, you fool. This time is well spent, though. If it was, if it, if it felt like filler, or if it felt like kind of dragging its feet, um, I, I would, you know, be more inclined to agree with you. But to, to the other man's point, I mean, it it does work so well to one give Yannick time to you know reestablish her character, deal with that grief. I mean, that scene in, that he mentioned in, in the morgue where the bodies are is phenomenal. I mean, she's she does a, a great job in, in both movies, but I, mean, I think especially here. Um, but you have that, but again, also the supporting cast. I think, I mean, because the immediate comparison is obviously something like Halloween 2, mm -hmm. and I'm sure we'll touch on that again, but it, it's, and it's basically what this is a riff on. Like, no, there's no way fans are buts about that. But what it does is it gives you this group of characters, and it gives you an introduction to them where they, they feel real. None of them are kind of like the obnoxious, you know, horned dog or the obnoxious asshole that, you know, are, okay, yeah, I'm looking forward to them dying. These feel like just regular folks at this hospital doing a job, you know, counting down the minutes. Um, but it's enough to get you into each of their lives. And so that helps so that once the actual kills do start, not necessarily that you care about these characters, but you definitely have more of an interest to them being be more than just a body count. Um, and so when she starts, when Yannick starts running around, you know, trying to help people and trying to save people and then also fight the bad guy, you're actually interested. Like they even give you an on-screen, not on-screen, but like they may mention, okay, who's in the hospital? Who's here? And they start going through the different characters and say, oh no, that one's dead already. And you can feel it. You can feel there's the loss there because the number is already so small to begin with. And they just keep counting it down. And it's so it, it works, I think, to the film's benefit to give you that setup and that time with these characters. So you get a little snippet of their personal lives, a little bit about them. And so once things start, because once things start, there's really not a lot left for you to learn about them. Mm -hmm. the, the you know, the sheriff is out learning about the killer, but the rest of these guys are just dealing with the situation. And so I don't know. I think it benefits it and it makes the kills more worthwhile once they start happening. I do like the simplicity. I will say that. I mean, like you just explained, there's not much going on here besides there's a killer loose in a hospital and people are trying to survive. And I, I give it a lot for that because the tension it creates and the depth of slasher, you know, just presence that it builds in that small constraint is very impressive. Yeah, it's, I mean... You know, for one, it's hard for me not to appreciate anything that takes place in grief, wintry, slasher nonsense. Of course, this is going to be my cup of tea pretty much right out of the gate. But here it comes. No, I, I just I want to double down on what, what Rob was saying about the, the performance of the two of them. Like, I, I can't pronounce their names. I can't speak Norwegian. So I will just say the actresses that play Yannick and Camilla, um, they're putting in Ingrid real work. Marth. And they're who? What? Ingrid Bolso Bardal. Oh, God. Come on, Donato. Um, so we don't even off on TV. Relax. That's fine. So those, I mean, these two actresses are, are given time. I'm, I'm not. I'm not listening to you anymore. 
um, are given time to really like kind of establish these characters. And the character of Yannicka is, I think, like a, a should be a top tier final girl um, in terms Agreed. of how she navigates mm-hmm. the first film and how she navigates this one as well. But what's really what's really interesting to me about the kind of relationship is just uh, the fact that one, you're you're right, Rob. Like they're they're not only borrowing from uh, Halloween two, but they're also borrowing uh, from Assault on Precinct. I can never remember the number Precinct, whatever. Right? Like this is the 13, 13. thirteen. Thank you. This is the the last night that this hospital is going to be in operation. Like they are just mm-hmm. coating the walls, they're painting the walls with John Carpenter shit in here in a way that I really like. But that first bit is like you just you get you don't need a lot to appreciate the characters. There's an economy of storytelling where they're like, here is who they are. Here is what they're about. Here's what's important and what means something to them. Now that's going to be threatened. Like do that in a way that feels organic and do that in a way that doesn't feel like you're, you know, you're, you're just creating cliches to be knocked off later down the line. And that's what we get from everyone. We get just enough elements of like who they are and what they look for that, that when bad things start happening to them and when the numbers start ticking down, like I, I feel these deaths. And that's something I like about the Cold Prey mo- movies, the first two, and I'm never going to see the third because I hear it's terrible. But like the things that I like about these two movies is, is there's just, there's such a, a sympathy towards all the characters. You're never rooting for any of them to die and they're never doing the wrong things. There's just kind of this inevitability about, um, is there a name for him? Pickaxe, whatever he's called. They call him Mountain Man everywhere I was like researching. But yeah, okay. there's no actual, obviously, you know, if we want to spoil but no, we don't have to. Let's yeah. just call him an asshole because that's what he is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so he's yeah, a very mean man. There's sympathy. There's a, there's a lot of sympathy towards these characters, and you're never rooting for them to get picked off by the asshole. Right. And I would also extend that a little bit to when you, you mentioned about how they're not doing the wrong thing or the bad thing. Um, to the character of Yannick being a final girl, she. So in this film, um, you, you do spoilers on here, right? It's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. In, in this film, she goes through it all, and she makes a choice in the end to pursue. Uh, the asshole into the frozen tundra back to the hotel where all everything started in the first place. Um, but even when she's in the hospital, she's, she's not making choices at any point where you're like kind of, oh, come on, you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. You, you believe the choices in part because, I mean, they make sense, whatever, but also in part of what we mentioned earlier with the character time. You understand and acknowledge her anger and her grief over her friends being, being killed. Not to, not to disrespect or take anything away from like Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween movies. I love Halloween. Obviously, it's fantastic. But when you hit Halloween 2, you're not feeling any of her... It's the same night, obviously, but you're not feeling any of her real grief or, or problem with the friend she just lost in the mm-hmm. past 12 hours. You don't have that at all. And that's more on the, on the writing and direction than it is on her performance, but you just don't feel that. It's not part of the character. Here, you believe that this is just you know mere hours later. You believe that she is torn up with grief and loss, but also just furious that yeah. this, nobody, this person, would do this. And so you completely understand why she helps people out, but then also why she will pursue this guy and wants it to end. Yeah, I like the scene a lot where she is looking at all the corpses of the people from, or the victims of the first film and her friends, and then she gets to the corpse or, you know, the not corpse that we find out of Mountain Man, and she just starts beating the shit out of it. Like, she has that momentary breakdown where... She just starts hitting this what she presumes to be a dead body, but she's still beating it, hitting it. Just all the anger and rage that she's feeling right there. Do you think it's intentional at all? Like, or is it implied or suggested that her pounding on his chest is what got his heart started again? <laughs> Could, I mean, I didn't read it as that, but <laughs> that's a that's a great thing to think about. The fact that like her not being able to contain that and her not being able to hold that back is what she still needed an outlet yeah she basically brought him back to life in order so she can get her catharsis that's oh i like that a lot i'm gonna i'm gonna believe that now even if it's not true i'm just gonna believe it well i do i the the way that they kind of parallel that later too where they're they are actually resuscitating the mountain man Mm -hmm. and they do all of that with the sound dropped and she's screaming in slow motion as she's trying to get to them and the paddles are going every single time. It's just like, even that doesn't feel, you know, sometimes when a movie gives the killer an opportunity to come back to life, you're like, Jesus Christ, like we get it. You need this guy for more movies in the franchise. And this just sort of, I mean, it felt like they didn't entirely believe her because why would they? Um, they're doctors. They don't have anything else to do. They got to save a life if it's there. It's just like everything that happens in this movie feels like such a natural progression from what happens before dating all the way back to the original film as well. It's just really, really tight storytelling. And I think sometimes, you know, we all, to varying degrees, really enjoy slashers as a genre. But sometimes you go in thinking like, 
all right, here's what I'm going to get, but I'm not going to get storytelling. So like, I don't even care about that. And let's evaluate it on the, all the other stuff. This is a movie where you get a lot of storytelling. And that to me, it, it, it's what makes it one of my personal favorite slashers. It's just the fact that I'm like, oh yeah, you can have all this really key character work and you don't, and you can have them moving in these believable ways and you don't have to throw all that aside because it's a sequel. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, that's what sets apart a, a memorable and properly executed slasher versus a generic slasher is just that storytelling. I mean, it's not that slashers can't have storytelling and they don't need it or stuff like that. It's that the better slasher films mm-hmm. always end up taking the time to do that. That's what sets apart the slashers in my mind. Which also is what makes this so impressive because again, if you if you just take it from the synopsis, okay, wait, sequel to a slasher and she wakes up in the hospital and all the killers here. Yeah. I mean, we already mentioned Halloween too, obviously. And that's, it's clearly what like the entire setup yeah. is, is that where they just say, you know what, hey, we can continue the story by doing this. And so it feels on the surface, um, you know, almost lazy and kind of like, okay, well, this is just a cash grab or whatever it might be. But to see, and they could have easily just jumped in and done like a generic job of it. Mm-hmm. But to see that they took that initial setup, which is very, very basic, um, and then built something out of it with these characters, you know, with the story, um, it, it shows a kind of care that as much as I love slashers, you don't always get in slashers and you, you definitely don't always get in sequels. So it, it's, it's definitely impressive on a lot of fronts. Yeah, it's proof that you can. It, it's that thing that you know everyone generalizes slashers for being the schlock, for being the slaughterhouse massacres. And it's just like, oh, that's what a slasher is. And it's so nice to be revitalized seeing something like Cold Prey 2 and then going like, no, but I promise the, you can do this. You can have everything and have it all. Yeah, and it's interesting to me kind of the time that it came out to because I feel like the narrative, right, like the narrative of slashers as a subgenre of horror is that the late 90s, early 2000s sort of killed them and they've been sort of dormant. And it's only recently that we're seeing them kind of come back. And so to me, when I talk about the Cold Prey movies with folks, I'm like, oh, there was this really good slasher that came out at a time where nobody wanted a slasher. So go see it. Like it's Mm -hmm. there for discovery. And we've talked about this. So little name drop here. Uh, we, Rob and I co-host another podcast, Silent Night, Deadly Podcast, which is just Christmas horror. And it's funny you mention this because, I mean, IMDb has the year as 2008, but I'm looking at Amazon right now and, like, they list the year as 2013. So I guess that's when Cold Prey 2 officially, like, got distributed out here. And if I remember correctly, Rob and I talked about the same kind of thing about, like, slasher films were not in at this time. Like, no one really wanted these kind of movies. No one's really making them. And then we were talking about Stephen Stephen Miller's Silent Night remake. And it was the same thing where, like, you have a really good slasher format here. And you have a slasher that does a lot of things right. And you're like, why did it kind of get ignored? And it was because at the time, like, no one was really doing that kind of slasher film. No one was making that kind of movie. So, yeah, I I agree with you. It comes out and it's kind of like, you know, oh, my. It's kind of like a diamond in the rough at at the time that, like, I didn't even believe, like, should exist in a way. But also, this was a foreign film. So foreign films don't play by the same trends that are going on in America. So I, I think right. that might play into it a little bit too. Yeah, they're not in the same timeline, I think, is what the, the masses or what the media is covering and seeing over here, which is, again, to, just to bring it back to like you know film festivals, this is one of the reasons why I love them is because you mm-hmm. are seeing these movies that were created outside of of this you know American bubble, this you know American horror bubble, this Hollywood bubble, whatever you want to call it, um, on their own timeline, you know, with their own, you know, rhythm and everything going on and so it's giving you kind of a glimpse into these other these other worlds in a sense I mean not just literally because it's a whole different country but, but you know what I mean yeah. as, as far as like yeah we might have been done with them over here over here we might have been focused on oh ghost movies you know they're cheaper mm-hmm. and there's no you don't need effects because invisible torture porn yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's but other countries and other filmmakers elsewhere are, are still focused on other things and whether that be whether it's because they were running behind the US I mean you can make that argument maybe that they were kind mm-hmm. of playing catch up or were they ahead or were they just doing their own shit? I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. Because, but either way, yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically the last few years even, and I'm trying to, I'm hoping for that slasher renaissance. I really want slashers to come back, and I know we're trying now with the Halloweens and stuff like that, but I think that's still only because of remake culture. I want new slashers. I don't need the Halloween remake, the Child's Play remake, the every one of those remakes. Like, I'm fine with them coming out. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a remake hater, but I would rather see movies like... Uh, Lake Bodum or Party Hard Die Young, which are these fa- new foreign slasher films that are having fun with the same tropes of the 80s American slashers, but they're still giving it a little twist and they're still proving that the slasher can survive in today's uh, mentality. 
So we're talking about slashers, um, and there's going to be there will be a a group of people that listen to this podcast and are like, okay, grief and sequels and character development and all that, great, that's fine. Thank you, Matt and Rob. But how are the kills? So let's talk mm-hmm. about the kills. I mean, to a certain extent, even the smartest, best slasher is not going to be successful unless it delivers creative and inspired ways of killing some characters. So how did you feel, um, Donato, again, I'm going to start with you because you're new to the franchise. How did you feel about some of the kills that they had in Cold Prey 2? Oh, it's brutal. They all live up to exactly what they should live up to. Um, it's that really gut punch kind of kill with, I'm pretty sure, each and every one of them. A few are off screen. So, you know, they, it has that working against it. You have the mountain man towards the end when the police are chasing him. And you get, like, one of them gets dragged off and they find the body. Another one gets, like, slashed off screen and they find the body. And I get that. That's fine. You know, it's, it's a lot of kills in one little sequence. So you can't really show a lot of different creativity in there. But, I mean, I wrote down every kill. That's one thing I did when I took my notes. So I'm looking at all, like, seven kills here that we, like, see. And, I mean, the first one, a cop gets his uh, neck slit open. At 37 and minutes like with, and 52 seconds. Right. At that exact time, he gets his neck slit open. But it's not just with one scalpel one or one like implement uh, basically in the hospital. It's with a handful of them. So it's like a bunch of slashes across his neck. And the mountain man just drops a shit ton of scalpels just like right on the ground. I love that visual. And then for some reason, the neck snap. So you have the male doctor. He's running away and he's trying to run up stairs that are covered in snow. That's a great And shot. like he slips and falls. So he's looking upwards towards this open door and he's laying on these steel stairs that are going upwards. And the killer just comes up behind him and grabs, it, grabs his head from behind and just pulls back until his neck completely snaps. And it's not like the head goes back down and it's like a snap neck death. Basically, he's broken the neck. So now the neck is at a right angle with the body looking upwards and it's such a vicious look where it's just his neck is stuck in that position his head is stuck in that position and his eyes are open eyes are wide open snow around him it's oh it's that's so brutal to me that is so just pure brute strength and just the killer this prime primalness that is just so scary so kills deliver i'm I'm giving the i'm full excited about the kills i would add too that even though like other than those two that you just mentioned, they're not really, you know, gory or bloody or whatever no. yeah, yeah, as far yeah. as effects goes. The movie doesn't rely on, like, it, it doesn't give you kills where it's, like, a character walking. It even teases at one point. When one of the, um, I think she, she's a nurse, the blonde nurse, mm-hmm. she finishes her shift, and you're waiting for the hand to show up in the screen. You know, she goes into mm-hmm. the shower, you're waiting for, the, you know, she's getting, she, whatever. And she just goes through all these beats where, you know, many, many lesser movies that's where like the, the killer pops into screen, you know, and then that's you know cuts face to black, or whatever. Or that's the kill. Here, it lets her get through all these beats. She gets outside into the hallway, and then you know through the flickering lights, you then see the killer there. And so it, it becomes not about you know pop up scares or, or jump scares. It becomes about like okay, she's aware of this presence. He's immense. He's you know imposing, and now he's after her. And so even if you don't get a bloody kill at the end of it, there's an intensity I think. Uh, to the actual, you know, direct hunt where he's actually, you know, in the frame with her, in the frame with these characters, tracking them down, you know, to the point of killing them. Yeah, this is not a slasher film that works in comedy. This is not a right. slasher film that works in lighthearted kills, and it's going for, like I mentioned before, slashers that go for the over t- over the topness. Mm-hmm. This is a slasher film that handles death as it should be. It's very violent. It's very brutal, and it's very just that gut punch that I keep explaining. And I give it a lot of credit for that because it pulls that off. Not every slasher is able to do that. You feel the intensity of every kill. You feel how evil this killer is and just how this killer wants to kill. And it pulls that off very well. Yeah, I, it should come as no surprise to anybody listening that like I give bonus points to kills that are that are terrifying but not explicit. I, mm-hmm. I don't love explicit death scenes in movies unless they're really specifically purpose-driven and intentful. And I think a lot of times they aren't. So I, this to me is a movie that I definitely, I, I like the way that they do the kills because there are a few. I mean, there are times in this film where things are brutal and bloody and bad, but it's never, it's never the default. Like they don't feel the need to deliver and escalate on every single kill. Instead, each kill sort of fits the circumstances of the characters, um, which means that they can, they can kill somebody. The, the second kill in the movie can be an off-screen head bash with a fire extinguisher and you never see the you know the results of that you never see in full focus the body or the head of the person who died 
but you don't need to because you it was never about that person in terms of the context of the kill. It was about leaving that person to be found and how that affected the other survivors in the hospital. It's just and, and you and, still get the blood splatter and, too. And also to that to that particular kill, it's her friend, um, the other final girl from this film, who you know comes out of the room. She trips over the bloody fire extinguisher, and so we know what what that fire extinguisher was used mm-hmm. for. We know that her friend is dead, but the the film takes its time to like let her kind of like come to realize this thing's bloody look and then you know her friend at the end of the hall with like the bashing head not in a glory shot or a gory shot of zoomed in whatever but she from her perspective sees it and um and so again you get the emotional element mm-hmm. to the discovery to the kill even if we didn't again see the actual kill itself yeah and like i said you see the blood splatter uh, or blood spatter whatever you're supposed to say in that sense yeah. uh of when the extinguisher hits you get that blood that just shoots across and it, it's like a white kind of tile wall. So you get the whiteness just covered in blood. And I mean, that's all you need to know. You need to, you know she's dead. You don't need to see anything else there. You've got everything you need. I'm going to give Cold Prey some, some bonus points too for, for the killer, for the mountain man character, because there's a lot of movies, I feel like a lot of slashes I watch where they want you to think that their killer is this like, giant like un, like monster of a human being just size and, and bulk and you know sometimes how you end up with sort of like the late generation jc jason's where they're you know more muscle than than man and i feel like one of the interesting things about these movies is how that mountain man character feels like terrifying and huge but they don't ever seem to really like it's not, he's always covered in the clothing so you, you kind of see more of a shape than a clear outline it's not that this is a a giant bulky you know um, classic 80s monster killer type thing. It's just like this character is towers over everybody else in the movie and they find a million different ways to play with the perspective of the survivors and kind of show like this this thing is enormous. Yeah, and I really like one of the shots where I forget which character it is. It's one of the, you know, human characters and I, I, the killer is human too, but they're, you know, just in the sense that it's one of these survivors or people trying to survive and they're at the end of a hallway and we see them very in the foreground of the camera. They're very close to the screen. And way in the background, at the other end of the hall, you see the killer, the mountain man, start walking towards the character. And that perspective is so interesting to me because as he, the killer gets closer and closer, it feels like he's filling up the hallway. And it feels like he's like barely fitting in and like his head's almost like hitting the ceiling. So you just get this perspective of how big he is. Mm-hmm. And he seems so small, far away, but as he gets closer and closer, just how hulking he is at that point. Because I do think the clothes definitely add because he has multiple layers on, and I think it adds some bulk to him. But he still is gigantic. And they do a lot to basically play that up and show it as a menacing killer. My favorite uh, aspect of that is towards the end when Yannick goes to try and kill him. And she gets, first off, that the whole, the whole sequence where she falls asleep and then awakens only to realize that he has come in, snuck past her, and is behind her is just so well done. But to that point, they then start tussling, and at one point, he grabs her wrist and lifts her up. And after several shots where she's filling the frame as she's being knocked around and on the ground, he lifts her up, and you then see her as this like small red doll, basically, next to this large man who's holding her up, her entire heft, with one arm, um, before then tossing her across the room. And so it, it definitely gives that, continues that impression that this is just, he's, again, human, yes, but he is still a monster. Yeah. And it, this movie does one of my favorite things that a horror movie can do, um, I think, because you, and it, it sort of feels relegated primarily to sequels, which is, in the first movie, a group of characters that aren't prepared get attacked by some sort of a killer or a monster, and only through wit or luck are they able to survive. In the second movie, I feel like, is when they give them weapons, like real weapons, like guns and stuff. And there's nothing that I enjoy more in a, in a sequel or, or in a, uh, an original horror film that has the guts to do this, which is basically like, give all your people weapons and then show that it doesn't matter. It's the aliens thing to a T, um, which Cold Prey 2 does as well. There's a scene where the three officers go back into the hospital to try and, you know, see if they can get the killer. And it just, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They, they have a rifle and a pistol and a shotgun between the three of them. And they're moving in some approximation of like military circles. And it just, it doesn't matter because like you, what, what are you going to do when there's this giant mass that knows the hospital better than you? And is just waiting for you inside. It's, it's one of my favorite because I like that soldiers versus monsters thing. It's one of my favorite tropes. Yeah. And one of the kills in that specifically, you have the first guy who finds 
their, one of their fallen comrades already dead uh, previously. And he's standing over the body and the killer has set a trap basically. And it's like a snare. So he gets caught in the snare and immediately the killer yanks and he starts getting pulled down the, uh, or he's pulling the cop down the hallway and the cop is an assault rifle. And basically the killer is pulling this cop into one of the hospital rooms and just as he gets the as the uh, the cop gets the entrance, he pulls his assault rifle and puts it lengthwise and tries to use it as this brace before entering, being pulled into the room and to his certain death. And he's being pulled so hard by the killer that the wooden door frames just break. Like he's trying to stop it, explode. But they just they break like and give way and inwards. explode. Yeah, exactly. They explode inwards, and he just gets pulled right into the room. And it's like just that brute force that would have to be used to make that happen. It, it's such a little detail to me, but it adds so much more to the visual storytelling. And it shows that the gun was no use as an offensive weapon or as a defensive one. It wasn't right. able to like you know prevent his demise in any way, shape, or form. No, not at all. I while we're talking about kind of like the way that the the movie is shot, you know, this is this is a sequel to what is now a pretty you know, pretty well known director and Roar Utag, which I assume is how you pronounce that. Um, this is the guy that directed Cool Prey. He directed The Wave, which I have not seen, but I know that most people love. Um, and then more famously, recently directed um, Tomb Raider, the the new adaptation of Laura Croft's story with Alicia Vikander. So this this franchise is is sort of the um, the creation of somebody who has a, who has a reputation for being able to do a lot with a little. And there's a lot of touches of like high class, high detail touches throughout this film that I just, I'm not used to seeing, um, I guess in, in movies that aren't, you know, operating kind of, you know, aren't auteur driven, like, you know, well-known established filmmakers. And I'm thinking in particular of the two times where they use darkness, like pools of darkness in a hallway when the killer is coming up the stairwell and you can't see them there. Or when Yannicka is coming out of her hotel or out of her hospital room and there's the, the, the double glass doors with a hand that just keeps smacking against the glass and you can't see beyond the darkness in there. Like the set design in this, and especially the use of lighting, is just so polished. Um, you know, it, it's it's rare, I think, to find, especially for a first-time filmmaker. This is a, a first-time director, and for the sequel specifically, I, it's it's kind of one of those things where you understand when you see something like this how national film industries can kind of pop up around individual talents because they just they're so good and they bring so much clout. And you're like, oh shit, this entire country I need to pay attention to because they were able to make something like this. That I, Rob, I, I imagine that's got to be what you were talking about earlier, how you feel, where like you watch one filmmaker from a country you didn't know their output and you're like, oh, everything else is on the map now for me. Yeah, it is one of those things. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, because it, it does open your eyes, but it's also, it it's opens your eyes because of the specific nature of what you see in the film. But also, I mean, just whether you're in the industry or whether you're covering the industry or just like a fan of movies over here, what you're inundated with, for the most part, are obviously movies that are, you know, released here, movies that are made here, um, movies that are part of this system. And so once you do kind of like crack the door into, uh, you know, films, especially when it's a movie that kicks your butt and it's just great, um, you want to just bust that door open as wide as you can and go check out more. Um, and so that is the kind of thing. I mean, and specifically to this movie as well, one of the things I like too is that I think if this was a, um, you know, an American movie, I mean, I'm just imagining, but I mean, There'd be a lot of uh, green screen shenanigans. There'd, yeah. be, there'd be a lot of like soundstage stuff where, you know, fakes. This movie feels like once they get outside, especially, you feel like they're just like legitimately out, you know, in the middle of, of, of this winter, of this, of this nightmare. And so it feels like it's something that is, you know, an artistic choice, but also because, yeah, maybe they just don't have the, you know, the access to those kind of, you know, uh, uh, affect shenanigans, and so they just go this route. It's one. Of, it's one of those you know old school lessons about like, well, you know, people on lo- a lower budget can be more creative because they have to be. And so to that end, I think it's a combination of that kind of thing. They don't have the million dollar budgets, but also the artistry where they know, okay, this is going to be an effective shot. This is going to you know create the sense of isolation um, uh, of this character being alone or in the middle of nowhere. And so they go for it for those senses, as opposed to like, okay, how can we shortchange this to get us to the next kill? Um, but yeah, it's definitely the kind of thing that, I mean, you, that you notice, you take into account and you say, okay, I want more of this, please. Yeah. And I mean, that's the benefit of Nordic filmmaking. I think that's the benefit of 
something like Dead Snow and all these other Nordic horror mm-hmm. films, they make use of the mountain ranges. They make use of the snow. They make use of landscapes because they can. That's their advantage. Attack of the Lederhosen and Zombies, something as low budget and crazy as that, still looks awesome because it's it's this Nordic horror film that makes use of like ski slopes and stuff like that. They just look great. And I mean, again, Matt, to your credit, uh, you know, Roar, who directed the first film, went on to have this great career. And then you look at the sequel, directed by Matt Stenberg, who doesn't have any other credits. This is his only credit. He's not a producer. He's not a writer. He hasn't done anything else. All Matt Stenberg has done is Cold Prey 2, and all he did was direct it. Like, that's crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, sometimes, you know, we all know that if you're looking at another industry's output, sometimes those credits lag behind, so it's possible. He certainly could be doing television in Norway and things like that. You know, it's not like he's, he's not working, but just the fact that, like, this is as polished a horror film, a slasher in particular, that I've seen in a long, long time, and the fact that, you know, if, if this had come out, again, we're talking about American cinema, if this had come out from an American filmmaker, studios would be lining up to give this person a blank check. Like this person would be relaunching franchises. They would be giving them a new version of Scream or, you know, they'd be trying to remake the faculty with them or something like that's just how this industry works. And this person makes a film in 2008. That's awesome. And, you know, does not work for American audiences again. And you're kind of like, come on, come on. Yeah. I think though, to that point too, I think that it's the, not that I'm saying this is the reasoning behind any of it, but you mentioned like, you know, Scream or the faculty. One of the reasons why I think slashers lost favor is because at the end of the day, they are a one note storyline. There's a killer and he's killing people. Like that's it. There's no, there's (laughs) rarely any additional, you know, uh, information on top of that. I mean, okay, well maybe this guy had a rough childhood or maybe he's like an escape lunatic, whatever. And then here's the pool of victims go. That's what most slashers come down to. I mean, you, you know them by their settings or by their holiday or whatever, but they're still come down to that very basic. And so movies like Scream or The Faculty, I mean, those are both Kevin Williamson, but even other types of ones, the, re- the reason why the genre started to come back in a f- some shape or form is because they started to twist things in ways. Now, yeah, there's the meta side of it, but also the humor side of it. People started infusing these things with like you know big laughs and catchy kills and smart writing and stuff like that. And so you, it's not just the very, very basic... Um, slasher setup and so to this movie it i mean we're, we're all praising it rightfully so but again if you take a step back the, the actual plot of it is that one note thing there's a killer and he's killing people there's no there's nothing meta about it there's nothing you know twisted or, or crazy or or new about the storyline there's nothing else to it it just is that premise done so damn well mm-hmm. and so as much as it pains me, I understand why, you know, Hollywood studios didn't catch on to this and go, oh, look at this guy. You know, th- it wasn't a lot of chatter about it because the people who watched it and enjoyed it love it because they've seen a lot of slashers and they know that this one just does it, everything so damn well. Um, whereas it's not flashy, though. And so you don't have, you know, the loud voices going on about it, about its twists and its turns or its, you know, cool premise or its, you know, funny humor or whatever. None of that's there. It just is a killer killing people. But again, done extremely well yeah i mean look at how jason and the leprechaun and chucky had to survive they had to go to space they Mm -hmm. had to do all these crazy things and i mean granted the child's play franchise took the greatest turn it could take with bride of chucky by infusing all the comedy in there it went from being a jokey child's play three to like no we're embracing the comedy here and i think it's i think bride of chucky is one of the best if not the best horror sequel i've ever seen uh but yeah, they don't do that here, and they don't have to because they just know how to tell a damn story. And it's so funny because I'd rather see that ten times versus, all right, let's uh, shoot Jason into space and cryogenically freeze him and then have him kill some astronauts. Don't get me wrong, I love Jason X, right. but give me the well-told story over, all right, how do we keep this gimmick going? How do we get another sequel out of Jason Voorhees without kind of doing the same thing over again? I, you know, yeah. It's a very interesting dynamic, and it sucks that Cold Prey 2 would be forgotten, Rob, as you said, because it's just like, well, it's just another slasher film. Yeah, but it's a really well-told slasher film that actually cares about its story. And, and to that point, I mean, I often talk about um, being a fan of the horror genres sort of to me, it feels akin to being a jazz musician in the sense that there are standards. Um, you know, there, there are set pieces of music. There are set 
properties, there are set formulas that, that, you know, people are adhering to. And if you love jazz music, you know, part of, part of that is you're, it's not like you're necessarily hearing a new song, but you're hearing an old song done in a new way. You know, if I go in and I hear somebody doing a rendition of my funny Valentine and they're just like, they're doing something with it. It's the same song. Like it, it, it is all the, all the words. Valentine. Yeah. My funny Valentine. You know that one? Sing it, Matt. My, uh, no, I'm not going to sing it for you. But like, so like, yes, you know, you know, my funny Valentine. It was in Talented Mr. Ripley. Um, so just the idea that you're taking like this piece of music that everybody knows and you're not messing with any of the lyrics, the verses are all still going to be the same. The refrains are going to come in at the same spot, but you're adding something to it as, as a musician and as a craftsman that only you can bring to that. And I sometimes feel that's the blessing and the curse of being a really involved and passionate horror fan is like, you no longer see the songs, you know, you're no longer seeing the jazz standards. What you're seeing is the improvisation. What you're seeing are the flourishes that somebody is bringing to it as an artist and, you know, if you were to put that same, this same performance, metaphorically speaking, in like a hotel lobby, I would be like, oh, that's my funny Valentine. I know that song. That's a good song. And you're like, no, but like, listen to what he's doing. You need to know how everybody else has done it in order to appreciate how they changed it. Okay. Now that I'm saying that out loud, yes, maybe this isn't for you. Maybe this is just for me. <laughs> well, on that note, let's, what? No, uh, it's what, a really what, good what's... analogy. What are you talking about? Like, no, no, I know. No, I'm just, it's a funny transition to me because that is a really good analogy. And now I'm just like, all right, well, Rob has to go soon. So let's, uh, let's get to wrapping this up. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Um, this then is the ultimate litmus test. The name of the show is Certified Forgotten. We are the arbiters of whether stuff is certified forgotten or certified found. We never came up with a punny one for that. So what do you got, Rob and Matt? Are we keeping this one? Is it entering in our special little canon or are we keeping it on the outside looking in? Should it be forgotten or should it be rediscovered? It's kind of a stupid fucking question. I mean, <laughs> of course it should be rediscovered and people should watch it and more people should talk about it after listening to this podcast. And then they should tell friends and they should tell friends. And and we should be able to get this Matt Stenberg guy some kind of Hollywood deal. Let's make this happen, people. I mean, I agree. Yep, I agree I, with all that. I agree. I'm going to side with Rob as much as that pains me mm. and say that Cold Prey 2 should not be forgotten. Get back out there. Go watch Cold Prey 1 if you've never seen it. And then go watch Cold Prey 2 because, yeah, that's a pretty damn good movie. It's only like three hours for both of them combined. So, you know, yeah. you could go really easy back to back. Go and, watch and Once Upon a Time also, in Hollywood for the fourth time. Or you could watch two really good slashes you haven't seen before. We, we didn't touch on it, but this movie, horror, the horror genre, I think, more than any other genre, as much as I love it, oftentimes is a hard time sticking the landing um, in various ways. I mean, some, most of them are fine, obviously, for, the, for whatever the movie is. But I think this one, it, it just lands it completely. It, it's, it's got a sense of finality to it. It's got a great final line, and you got two final girls. Come on, it's badass. It's a badass ending. Yeah, I, I, well, this is a conversation for in person another day. But I wish the movie had ended on the zoom out at the shotgun in the lobby. That's my, I do, I do wish that it had ended right there. But I like ambiguous endings. I don't need, I don't need the follow through. I would have seen a third movie. Yeah, but I like the action, so uh, yeah, you're wrong, Matt. That's fair. We get this great shot of her like throwing the pickaxe oh, blade so through the air. No, it's not three D. Final care. line, come on. All right. Well, we'll hash all that out on the on the other side. There you go. If you haven't seen it, you get to watch it and decide for yourself if the movie should have ended ten minutes earlier or if it ended at exactly the right time. That's the ambiguity we're leaving you with, um, <laughs> Mister Real Rob Hunter. If people would like to follow you on social media and drink from the font that is your wisdom, how do they do that? Fools. Uh, on Twitter, it's fake Rob Hunter. Uh, that's the only social media I'm going to share. But uh, otherwise, my actual writing, which includes lists, because I, as much as I will talk about things that pay the bills, um, as we've already kind of touched on, my my love of these smaller movies, these foreign films, sharing these kind of gems that I was delighted to like discover or find or be informed about from somebody else, because I learned about movies from other people as well, um, and then kind of passing that on. So my writing is over at Film School Rejects. Um, I also do some columns over at Slash Film, and again, Twitter, Fake Rob Hunter. Matt Donato? You can find the other Matt, me, at Donato Bomb, D-O-N-A-T-O Bomb, on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. You can also find my writing on sites such as Slash Film, Bloody Disgusting, Dread Central. <laughs> Rob is sighing because he has to hear me do this every you week on Silent again. Night, Deadly Podcast, too. Uh. But yeah, you know where to find me. Hit me up on the socials at Donato Bomb, and I will pimp myself out. As for me, you can find me just on Twitter for now. If you've listened to other episodes, I had different answers, but I'm feeling Twitter right now. It's Lab Splice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. 
Rob, I want to say thank you so much for joining us for a podcast. We'll be sure to have you back on sometime very soon. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. You're a very smart and intelligent guest, and I will deny that if anybody ever says it to me. Matt, take us out. You know what I'm looking for. Demon wind. There it is. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.